Tonight's message begins with uh, me walking through Killarne Estates about two weeks ago where I met a guy who was wearing a Pittsburgh Steelers t-shirt. And uh, having been raised in Pittsburgh, having been raised drinking Iron City beer, having been raised with a father who worked for United States Steel for about 27 years, one feels obligated to not only greet fellow Pittsburghers, but to engage in a customary exchange where you find out kind of what's going on and what your upbringing was like. And also, he told me an extraordinary story. It seems his dad was a coal miner, and one day when his father was 12 years old, he was shooting a uh, 22 rifle, and the rifle exploded right in his face, leaving one of his eyes blind. But his dad was very embarrassed by what had taken place. And so you know what he did? He decided not to tell anyone what had happened. He didn't tell his parents. He didn't tell any medical doctors or anything. He never sought treatment. And so when Pearl Harbor was bombed, he faked his way through an eye exam and he joined the military and fought for the United States, served his country. And then when he came home and he met a girl, He got married, but he never confided to her. Of course, this is this guy's mom. He never confided to her about his his true condition, though she eventually knew because there was just kind of a way he would tilt his head to the side when he had to look in a certain direction. She figured out early on something was going on. And as he grew older, he found that it was very difficult to drive when only being able to see through one eye, particularly at night. And so the guy who was telling me the story was telling me what it was like to actually get into the car with him, how it was always an adventure, and uh, they felt like they were risking their lives as kids because they just didn't know if they were going to make it. All because his dad never wanted anyone to know about his weakness. Now, on one hand, you could see qualities in that of what Tom Brokaw would call the greatest generation. You know, that Depression-era determination where you didn't talk about your problems. You, you solved your problems. You overcame adversity and obstacles. You conquered disabilities. But I think it also illustrates another side to the, to the human condition. The very reason why Good Friday was even necessary. And that is we are stubborn. We are a proud people. We don't like to admit imperfections. We don't like to talk about our limits, our deficiencies, our defects. We'd rather rather drive with one eye, hope the kids make it, you know, than talk about areas where we are weak. So Good Friday. You know, that's the name for the day, in case you don't know, that, that Jesus was crucified. In antiquity, the word good meant holy. So it actually means Holy Friday, but we we call it Good Friday. Good Friday is about this human condition. It's about our weakness. It's about our our stubbornness and our pride and our fallenness. All of those areas that we we fall short from the glory of God. We fall short of God's perfection. But there's this whole other side of Good Friday as well. One that doesn't often get discussed, but that's just as prominent in Scripture. It's a form of weakness that is featured in the person 
of Jesus Christ. And I want to draw your attention to it by reading to you from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. It says this, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Now, what I want to do tonight is I want to just take a stab at understanding that, that six-word description of Good Friday. For he was crucified in weakness. What does that mean? What does Christ crucified in weakness really mean? Well, it means many things. I'm going to talk about two of them. It means many more than this, but it means no less than this. First, number one, that Jesus became poor. See, sometimes we relate to Jesus like he had no story prior to his arrival on earth here. You know, he's kind of like that Jason Bourne character. You know, he just appears out of nowhere and he has no backstory, no history, no, no, the clock started the very hour he arrived and nobody really knows what went on prior to that. But that's not really the case according to Scripture. Because in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is described this way, quote, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. You know what that means? That means before earth, Jesus was in the heavenlies with the Father and the Holy Spirit, And while there, he was the object of worship. While there, he was receiving constant glory from the angelic beings. While there, he was absolutely magnificent to behold. And yet, in light of all of that, in light of the privileges and the prerogatives he had as the Son, next to the Father, next to the Holy Spirit, this was the decision that he made. I must become poor. Now, that phrase is a reference to a specific scripture. It's in 2 Corinthians as well. It's in chapter 8, where Paul, the apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, says, He was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Jesus said, I must become poor. Who decides to be poor? No one aspires to be poor. You never hear a teacher say, What about you, Johnny? I want to be poor. Oh, that's wonderful, Johnny. Let's give a clap for Johnny. What does that mean that Jesus became poor? Well, think about it. He he came as an infant. He didn't come as a man. He came as an infant. He was helpless. He was dependent. His parents were, were exiled before he even came. He had to flee. His parents had to flee. While he was growing up, there was no secret service detail always hovering around him in orbit just to protect him as he'd take a step in the wrong direction. He was fully human. Fully human. That means his body needed food. That means he became weary. That means there were times he just had to sleep. There were times he felt weak. There were times he was tempted Think about that for a second. You know, we have that whole Matthew 4 scenario where he's enduring the temptations of Satan himself. That's how bad things got for him. Satan, I mean, for most of us, let's be honest, 
We don't even get Satan. We get like one of Satan's interns, one of his preschoolers, you know, demonic gator fans. We don't know exactly what is assigned to the Four Oaks folks. But he had the full onslaught of Satan himself because he was poor. Because he was poor, he was tempted. But listen, because he was tempted, you know what that means for you and I? That means that Christ gets us. He gets us. I'm thinking about a passage in particular from Hebrews chapter 4 where it says, quote, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in, listen to this, every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Just ponder that for a second. Because he was tempted, he's able to sympathize with you today, with you right now, right here. You know what that means? That means you're not alone in your struggle this evening. That means there is one who loves you, who understands you, and and gets your weakness. One who was tempted in all of the same ways you were. He was was touched and, and battled temptation in all the same ways we do. He never succumbed to it. I mean, you know those times where you're afraid to maybe say something because you're putting yourself at risk or you're overexposing yourself in some way or you're just afraid to make yourself look... Christ gets that. He was tempted to keep his mouth shut. You know, when the kids, you know, for you moms here, you know, when the kids at home transform you into, you know, crazy mom or loco dad because they're just misbehaving in a certain way and you just feel like, I've got to, I'm going to give up the ghost or I'm going to kill them. I don't know what's going to happen first here. He gets that. He gets that. See, Jesus became poor. Let's move this out of the generic and the abstract for you. He became poor for you. Listen to the passage again. He was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So crucified in weakness means first that Jesus became poor. And secondly, it means that Jesus was crushed. He was crushed. Now, even as I say that word, you feel the emotional impact of that. Have you ever been betrayed by someone who is close to you? You know, maybe it happened in business. Somebody just shafted you. Maybe some close friend that acted in a way that was completely contradictory to everything they said. Maybe that's how your marriage ended. Utter and total betrayal. You know about that, that humiliating blow that's inflicted upon a human being when they feel betrayed. You understand the demoralizing effect, the demoralizing weakness that is imposed upon us. What this passage is saying and what this idea is conveying is that Jesus gets that. Jesus knows it as well. He was crushed. Now, let's not leave that in the abstract either. Because the Easter story begins with this whole idea of of betrayal. I mean, that's really where, where it starts, the betrayal of those closest. And I'm not just talking about Judas. I mean, Judas was bad, but Peter was bad as well. And it wasn't just Judas and Peter. It was really everybody that left him. He was utterly alone when he walked to the cross. Think about that now. Jesus. 
The only being ever in the history of the world to live a perfect life. The only one to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus was arrested. Jesus falsely accused. Beaten within inches of his life. Tried unjustly. And then marched with this bone-breaking cross to the place of crucifixion. Feeling the injustice of all the ways he was treated by those who were closest to him. And he had never done anything wrong. Ponder this idea for a second. The injustice that we feel for a crime is relative to the innocence of the victim. The the injustice that we feel for something done wrong, for a crime, is proportional. It's relative to the place or to the innocence of the victim. So, for instance, if you hear that a serial murderer was strangled in prison, we think, you know, okay, murder is wrong. That's the wrong thing to take place. But somewhere deep, deep in our brain, we think, you know what? He, he or she probably had what was coming to them. They, they reaped what they sowed. Why? Because there's a sense where the injustice we feel for a crime is relative. It's proportional to the innocence of the victim. I remember once being being blamed for breaking a window in the neighborhood. Now, on this rare occasion, I had done nothing. (laughs) I'd done nothing wrong at all. But I remember being accused. And I remember feeling the outrage, the utter indignation, the sense of atrocity that if something didn't change immediately, if this accusation didn't lift, somehow the world would just be tilted off of its axis and hurled into space. Because it all just seems so wrong. It all just seems so upsetting. And yet I was the logical suspect. Hey, listen, here's my point. Jesus was the perfect man. Perfect. You know what that means? He never had a meltdown. He never lusted. Never flipped anybody the bird. He never lied or gossiped. Yet he was scourged as the worst criminal that the world had ever seen. He was mocked as a complete outsider that nobody ever accepted. He was nailed to a tree surrounded by thieves. He was the king utterly disgraced on this earth. And considering he's God, I mean, submitting to that alone would qualify as weakness. That would certainly fulfill the weakness category. But the worse was yet to come. Because as he hung there bleeding, as he hung there suspended on the cross, betrayed, rejected, ashamed, alone, alienated, the sins of his people from the past and present and future was imputed to him. Don't let that word throw you. That's just a fancy theological word to say placed upon him. And the one who was perfectly holy, the one who dwelt in heaven amidst unapproachable light, now became a curse. He was cursed. So much so that the Father had to withdraw. So much so that the Father had to turn his face away, which is what resulted in the scream of desolation. Some theologians call it the scream of the damned. Where Jesus cried out, my God, My God, 
Why have you forsaken me? Jesus experiencing hell, separation, and alienation from God. And you would think that would be enough. You would think that would fill up the bowl of weakness to satisfy all things, but no. Then the Father seized that holy moment and filled with wrath from the centuries of godlessness and godless law-breaking, unleashed this fury of His righteous justice, but not upon us, not upon the people surrounding Him, not upon the people that crucified Him, not on the people that were deserving of that righteous judgment, but on the only person who was undeserving in the history of the world. The only person who never deserved to be punished was the one who received the full punishment. And I'm talking about a torrent of gruesome fury from the Father was poured out on judgment, and it all fell upon the sinless sin-bearer who loved us. It was a tsunami of righteous wrath that was poured forth until the the, 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 the last drip of the cup of judgment of God was dried up and gone. And the sun hung there, broken by the injustices of men, ultimately was crushed by God Himself. Men crushed Him, but there was a far bigger crushing that came. He was crushed by God Himself, the only begotten Son of God, was crushed by the weight and judgment of sin. He was crucified in weakness so that if we called upon His name in faith and repentance, we might be saved. Listen, there's nothing pretty about Good Friday except maybe that it leads to Easter Sunday. But there's nothing pretty or or, or happy about Good Friday. And yet, it's not until we understand a crushed Savior that we will truly comprehend a resurrected Savior. We've got to understand the crushing in order to understand the resurrection. Or maybe to say it in another way, until Good Friday be bitter, Easter will not be sweet. And so Good Friday must be bitter. We must taste it. There's a woman named Ann Miller who, in March of 1942, was was near death. She She was suffering from a simple strep infection, and she had been hospitalized for a month, often delirious, temperatures spiking to about 107 degrees, in and out of consciousness. And as a last resort, not knowing what else to do, the doctors gave her this experimental drug called penicillin. It's not some synthetic composition that was pulled up by some chemists in a, in a laboratory. It was, it was a simple blue mold in a Petri dish that they kind of worked with, and, and she was cured. She was fine about 24 hours later, within a few days, completely cured. She became the first person ever to be cured by penicillin. Again, a medicine of rather unimpressive origin. But it delivered this power to raise this woman from her affliction. And here's the thing, for the rest of her life, Ann Miller testified about how good this drug was. The memory of her affliction made the cure sweet. The illness 
for her was so bitter, it made penicillin a great delight. Listen, to truly celebrate the power of the resurrection when we arrive this coming Sunday morning, we must understand the wickedness of our own hearts and we must understand the weakness of our Savior because true power comes at the cross through a kind of simplicity, through an unexpected place, through a brokenness and a weakness, which is why Paul said, for he was crucified in weakness. And then he goes on to say, but lives in the power of God. And that's what we're going to talk about on Sunday morning. And I hope you can come back on Sunday morning so that we can talk about the power of God, so that we can celebrate the power of God, and so that we can reaffirm together that our Savior lives. Let's pray.